Most of the counsel we do will be informal. Most of the counseling that we do will just be informal in relationships, whether it's uh, with roommates, whether it's in the home uh, or in the church and just with friends on the phone, sometimes in email. Uh, and then there's the more formal sit down. We're gonna, it's going to take us uh, a few times to work through this. This is not something that is uh, remedied in one sitting. And so in this session, I want us to take a look at the heart. So this is session three. We're going to be looking at the heart and also in the area of repentance and faith. So those should be the two handouts that you have in front of you. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, I don't lose heart. We don't lose heart in light of the gospel of Christ. In light of uh, Christ being the, the strength in that earthen vessel, uh, in chapter 4, he goes towards the end and he says again, we don't lose heart. What, is that? what a great phrase in our time. With anxiety and fear and depression, with people all around us, he just says, we don't lose heart. Uh, yes, we are still in difficult circumstances, unknown what's uh, going to happen tomorrow, at least uh, activity-wise, we, we know the Lord's will is being carried out. But he says in verse 16, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Uh, what a good word for us today. But he's talking about this outer self, the outer man, the inner man. Um, so looking at a, a diagram uh, in a very, very rough form, I found this in J. Adams' Christian Counselor's Manual when he was re, uh, talking about schizophrenia. And then uh, Ed Welch picked up that and developed a little more of a diagram in his Blame It on the Brain, a very helpful book. And I just adapted it a little bit more, but it, we're one spiritual person, a whole person. And we're divided up, outer man and inner man, right there, 2 Corinthians 4. So outer man, inner man. But we're one whole person, and we're one whole spiritual person. So you have to be careful. The doctors, you don't say, well, the outer man's for the doctor. No, it's still God's. God owns us. He bought us with a price. So we don't put our trust in physicians. We put our trust in God. We utilize physicians, but our trust is not in them. King Asa put his trust in physicians, and God disciplined him. If you remember that back in... Chronicles, when he had diseased feet, and he says and, um, he put his trust in physicians rather than in the Lord. So utilize physicians. Don't put your trust in them for the outer man. And the outer man, there's all kinds of things. Uh, one influences the other, but outer man, numerous issues. I mean, we, uh, it would take us a while to fill up everything that goes on with outer man. Uh, Brain trauma is the first one on that up 
top there. I just wrote, finished a booklet on that uh, for a help series, a lifeline series for Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, my brother and I were hit by a drunk driver when we were walking along a road. I was 12 and he was 14, and uh, both of us had, had brain trauma. My brother, uh, just older than me, uh, had really severe brain trauma. The bumper hit him in the head, and they had to take part of his brain out. Uh, there, you know, brain trauma uh, changes a, a bit there on how you're processing and how you function. Uh, but that's outer man, but it, it has an impact, an influence on your heart. How you grew up in your home doesn't determine you, but it influences you. So we don't want to downplay influencing factors. We just don't want to say they're determinative. Our heart, we choose what we choose. But lots of things going on in the outer man and the inner man, all kinds of things can go on as well, problem-oriented issues. Uh, You've got people who are anxious, fearful. Some are in despair. If they're an unbeliever, I don't know what what might be going on uh, in the kingdom of darkness in their life. For a believer, I mean, we're in a spiritual battle, but we're not ever possessed. That's uh, for unbelievers. But you have some people who fake problems. Uh, I know of a young woman who faked a problem for a couple years. She faked a whole history uh, of what had happened in her life, but it was all to get attention. She lived a whole different life with people, saying, this is my... I'm coming off with uh, drugs and having faking withdrawal symptoms. I mean, she played the part, but it was all an act to get all the attention she never got and wanted and lusted for. But it was all a big lie. So people can do, there's a payoff often with people who um, there's nothing physiologically wrong with them, but they can act up in, in different parts. So you just... When someone says, here's what's going on in someone's life, what do you think the problem is? A chart like this is really helpful to go, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I don't know. Uh, it could be all kinds of stuff going on, the outer man, the inner man. Uh, it would take a lot of questions to find out. That's really helpful. If there was malpractice suits for counseling, a biblical counseling, I think we would be less fast to give here's counsel and slow down and say I don't want to answer before I've heard it just be careful people can uh, just tell you what they want you to know to make a decision but not everything you need to know Uh, here is a uh, a chart that has helped me I I just uh, as I was listening and thinking through counseling people I've divided things up into four little categories Someone tells me in their heart, so on the left hand would be the inner man, uh, and they tell you what's going on. They, they say, I'm, I'm angry, I'm struggling with this issue in my heart, and uh, okay. Now I put a gavel there. That's, you, you told me, it's evident uh, by others around you. Uh, that's for sure, we're going to deal with that. That's uh, what you're wanting help with. And then they may share some things going on physically with them. Maybe they say, I'm a diabetic, or I had back surgery, I'm still in pain. And they did have back surgery, and they're struggling with uh, getting, struggling with addiction with some pain meds. Okay, there's 
a gavel goes down, that's for sure. And then there's things going on in the body we don't know. And I'm fine with that. But our, our culture, our world doesn't like question marks there. They want to put exclamation points there. They want to put a gavel down on what they don't know. So chemical imbalance. That, that's a hypothesis. It's not even a really good theory. They can't prove anything. It's an embarrassment to the psychiatric world right now. But pharmaceutical firms are making billions of dollars on selling meds. And so they tell you they didn't find anything wrong with you, but they tell you you have a chemical imbalance and here's a medication. I don't know what's going on. There are chemicals, but they can't measure them. They don't know if it's too high, too low. It doesn't show up in their blood when they take your blood. Could something be going on? Yeah. Leave it a question mark. Don't put an exclamation down like the pharmaceutical companies are putting an exclamation point. Good psychiatrists would say, oh, we don't know that. So pull back on areas they can't prove. But I don't rule them out as it could be a possibility. Does that make you follow that? It, just pull back and saying, I, I don't know, they're still exploring. Okay, the body's a bit of a mystery. The brain is the least understood the organ there, the brain. Oh, I'm fine with question marks. And then there's areas in the inner man, the heart, where they just told me what, uh, what they know, what they've told me is going on in their life, but there may be other things that we might find out later as we're counseling or in ministry, but right now I uh, don't know. There could be some questionable things going on in their life. And I'm fine with that, too. So in the bottom two quadrants, that's more the dark. I don't know. I don't know what's going on physiologically. I don't know what might be going on in their heart that they haven't told me or revealed. So I'm not going to doubt around in the dark. I'm not going to try to get in there in in areas I don't know. I'm going to stay up in the light. Uh, and I would just encourage you to do that. When you're counseling with people, don't doubt in the dark what God has revealed in the light. So just stay in the light. Um, here's physical issues. Here's how to trust God with your physical issues and, and be wise, be a, a good steward of your body. And then in your heart, the things you've revealed, let's deal with them. If something else surfaces up, we'll deal with that. But I'm going to stay in the upper two. We'll trust God for the bottom two. But I, I don't have to have a, a gavel down on every part of your being. I, I, we don't know. I don't know physiologically or even spiritually in some areas what might be going on. Sometimes things are, uh, come out in counseling. Is that helpful? Just uh, uh, If someone says, um, and this sometimes where medications come in, I don't give medications, and I really appreciate, I think, uh, Pastor Steve put it in his notes as well. We don't counsel medically. I mean, unless you're a physician, you do it in your practice. I don't tell people to get on meds or get off meds. I don't, you have questions about your medications. You can explore some things online as far as side effects, but talk to your doctor. The doctor who put you on, uh, but I don't tell people to get on them. I don't tell people to get off of them. 
So I stay away from that. Um, and if someone says, well, I'm already taking um, medication for anxiety, uh, and now I'm finding out it's, it's more an inner man issue, um, do I just stop taking the medication? I'm saying, well, talk to your doctor. When it involves medication, talk to your doctor. But I don't try to make the medication the key issue. It's the heart issue I'm after. So if someone says, I, I, I just soon stay on it, but I'm intent on dealing with my problem, my heart issues, praise God. Let, let's work with the heart issues. So I try not to make the medication to be uh, sort of the, the big lightning rod issue. I, I think that can almost be a conscience issue. Uh, as long as they're committed to deal with their heart issues. That, to me, is the most important. These came up. God commands you. He, uh, you must deal with these issues, whether you're on medications or off medications. You go, well, I feel better. Yeah, but that, it's not chemical sanctification. Chemicals will not sanctify your heart. They're only symptom-relieving issues. So hopefully that, that, that chart just says, okay. And people, when I counsel them, whether they're on medications or off medications, they go, okay, that, that's fair. Uh, just don't come in on saying, I know exactly what's going on with you and your outer man or your inner man, everything about, I, we don't. And we should be okay uh, to minister on that level. So let's go from there, uh, James, if you'll switch over to the heart. That's uh, the area, the inner man, uh, sometimes also known as soul, uh, your, your soul slash spirit, but it's the inner man. The heart, uh, unfortunately, in our Western culture, we think the heart is the Valentine's picture. It's your emotions, my feelings. We go my head and then my heart. And to a Hebrew, they were, what are you talking about? Uh, they, would, they would refer to heart and loins or kidneys uh, as far as emotions. The, the heart uh, is the intellectual soul center of man. Uh, it is the mission control center. It's... Out of it flow the springs of life. It's what you want, what you think. So we're dealing with the activity of the heart, which is worship. Every heart is a worshiping heart. And this is on page one of your notes. Um, This was so helpful in, in dealing with any person's problems. Typically, the main problem that they're dealing with is their heart. The spiritual heart, the inner man, what they think, what they want, what they choose. But the activity of the heart is worship. And if you go to Romans chapter 1, you can see very clearly it's talking about worship here in this context. Verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
for his individual, indivisible, uh, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Every human being knows there's a God. That's presuppositional apologetics. Every human being knows there's a, there's a great God, a creator. They suppress it. So there's no true atheist or agnostic. They're, uh, if they're being truthful with themselves, they know better. They know and they suppress it. I was on a flight home from uh, overseas, and this really well-to-do couple sat uh, next to me. I thought, well, I, they usually were up in the upper, uh, up in the front end of the, the plane there, but very proper, uh, an older couple. They sat down, and uh, she was sitting next to me and her husband next to her, and I was grading. I was working through some papers. I had my Bible out. And she said, are you a Christian? And I said, uh, yes, I am. I said, are you? And she goes, no, I'm an atheist. I said, oh, that's really interesting. And I was trying to converse a little bit, and I said, you know, um, it's interesting because God says in the Bible there's no such person as an atheist. (laughs) And she says, where did it say that? I said, right here in Romans 1. So I opened it up, and I said, would you want me to read this? She goes, I'll read it. I handed her my Bible, and she starts reading that section out loud. Well, people are turning around, and she's, she's reading. I'm, she's reading. I'm not reading out loud. <laughs> and she's reading down here. It's clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Uh, you're without excuse, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him. They give thanks to him. They became futile. And she goes, that's so black and white. Well, I could show you some red letter. <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I knew what she meant. It's so black and white. And in our era, you know, you don't like, they don't like anything. Everything is gray and whatever you want. Kind of that, at the time, postmodern kind of thinking. And I, I said, um, she says, I, I believe every situation determines what's right or wrong. And I said, well, then that would make every person uh, their own God, determining what's right or wrong. Um, depending on how you interpret situations. And she said, you probably have read one of my dad's books. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Who is your dad? Joseph Fletcher was her dad, wrote the father of situational ethics. Wrote all at that time of the Nazis, and the, uh, he was very influential. He had two children. I went, as soon as I got home, I'm going, "Who? who is this person? And uh, she's the only surviving child. Uh, so it's just a daughter and a brother. And as far as I know, she's still alive. And so I'm, I keep praying for her. I have her in my prayer book. She at least read part of Romans 1. But there's no true atheist, no true agnostic. But it goes down further and says, uh, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Every person is a worshiper 
I just don't know who or what they worship until I meet them and ask questions. Every single human being is a worshiper. So that, that's the first thing I know when I meet someone. I know you're a worshiper. I, I don't know who or what you worship. So my, my test, kind of evangelism, if, if it's an unbeliever, is who or what are they worshiping? Uh, and now it gets down into the heart. So let me just keep going. The heart is the, the vehicle of worship. Uh, number, th- let me go back up. Um, some of the things involved in worship. 1C, uh, we sacrifice for what we worship, we serve, we seek, we spend time, energy, and money on what we worship, where your heart, where your treasure is, there your heart is. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So there's, there's elements there of heart worship. It was defiled. True worship was defiled at the fall in Genesis 3. But the heart is the, the vehicle of worship, the real you. And in our heart, we have our thinking, our affections, and our volition, our choices. And on page one there, our passions and affections, are often called emotions, are in some degree starting there. Emotions wasn't even a word until the early 1800s. It wasn't even used. What was used was passions, sin, desire, lusts. That's what was used. But when you have William James and then you have Sigmund Freud and Darwin and all the rest, they were trying to get God out, the Bible out, every word from that would signify we're responsible creatures out, and emotions replaced desire, passions, affections. So what was definitely heart-related in the Bible now has become known as emotions, and emotions at that time became physiological. It's all because of nature. I feel it. So that's why chemicals now, whatever your emotion is, chemicals solve it. All that was started right there in the 1800s. Replacing God, replacing his word, replacing biblical words. So the word emotion wasn't used before then. It's interesting, isn't it, uh, our, what's happened over time. So the word emotion is only a couple hundred years old, the use of it. And unfortunately, you have to reinterpret, you have to teach people, this is what the Bible says, this is what you've been calling an emotion, this is what the Bible calls it, and here's the solution for it, and it, it's not a pill. It, your, your body may be involved, but it's not the cause. And even physicians will tell you that if they have integrity. And the heart is where belief and unbelief take place. On page two of your notes, you can see some diagrams there of where within man, the inner man, I'm thinking, I'm wanting, I'm choosing. And it all should be going towards God and towards others. I I should be loving God with all my heart, soul, and mind, and love my neighbor as I love myself. 
and belief and unbelief. An old man, the, the old man there would be an unbeliever, often referred to as the old, uh, is unbelief towards God. That's why we call him an unbeliever. But the new creature in Christ, the new man in Christ, is now centered around Christ and is growing in their belief towards God and their faith, exercising their faith. And the gospel is what is needed to take someone from the old to the new. And so a diagram, it's it's similar uh, to that on our cognition, our affections, and our volition. And whenever you're looking at the inner working of the heart, in, in today's realm, it's all about what we feel. Uh, it's almost solely how I feel. W- what I feel is the truth. So intuition has become the, the authority. If you've read Carl Truman's book on the rise and triumph of the modern self, it, it's all about how I feel, I come up with truth, uh, I'm my own authority. So God's word is way down in that person's mind. But when I'm dealing with a Christian and they're saying, I just don't feel, um, I don't have feelings towards my wife or husband, or I, um, my, my relationship with God is cold and I want it warmed up. And I, I, I'm, they're talking all about their desire, their feelings stuff. How you want to warm up your uh, affections is with God's word and doctrine. The Puritans were really strong on this. Is if I'm going, you know, I just don't feel like giving. I don't feel like reading my Bible. What's the solution? Read the Bible. Because my thinking, I need to be reading about God, the gospel, and all of a sudden I'm starting to have the, the feelings, the affections that accompany that. You don't go right after affections. They would just take you into the word. The word would warm up the affections, and the warmed-up affections strengthen the, the volition, the resolve to do what's right. It kind of goes from the top to the uh, right and then off to the left, and then uh, actions that bring honor and glory to God. It's been so helpful um, if, if you don't feel uh, warmth towards a spouse, then you need to be thinking about God, the gospel, how Christ loves the church. Uh, start being, uh, what the scripture says, being thankful in all things and start thinking about your spouse. What can I be thankful for? The more you start thinking about the Lord, the gospel, and the what you can be thankful for, you go, I'm, I'm kind of feeling it now towards my spouse. That's what happens. It, it, the mind, uh, renewing that mind, going after the, the thinking with the scriptures, commands and principles uh, in scripture. Very, very helpful and counseling. So you have uh, the diagrams there again, all about self as the old, uh, now oriented towards Christ in the new. Number four, there are many terms for sinful heart worship. 
The Old Testament, you'll find words like lust, craving. Uh, they craved meat, you know, uh, in the uh, wilderness. <clears throat> Idolatry of the heart in Ezekiel 14. In the New Testament, same, you'll find words like lusts, enslavement, entanglement, even idolatry. It's a theme running through several of the books in the New Testament. And if you want lists for idolatrous lusts, uh, you have a few passages there, and I read one this morning in Galatians 5. Various lusts that come out into deeds and behavior. Uh, contemporary labels for these lusts, these are, are common. Uh, I think um, probably most of us will have these in our own uh, hearts, our flesh. Not that we're giving in to them, but they're there. Like I could. Uh, any of you not desire comfort? Any of you like pleasure? There may be a lot of these desires that are there, but they're not giving in to idolatrous lust in your life. But look at some of these. Man's approval. Uh, the world would call it codependency. Because I have to have this person's approval. A man fear. Uh, affection. I mean, attention. Uh, acceptance. Health. Nothing wrong with desiring health. You can worship it. It can, you can sin to get it, sin to keep it, sin if you don't have it. If you just look at what the advertisements are on TV, they're pretty much all appealing to these things uh, to make you dissatisfied with what you have and lust after. I mean, it, they're advertising to your, most of the time, to your flesh. That's why we tape stuff and we just... Fast forward right through the advertisements. But look at all the, some of these others. Wealth. It's not money that's wrong. It's the love of it. Pleasure. You go, what's wrong with pleasure? In the latter days, people will be more lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Affection, happiness, safety, comfort. That's a big one, by the way, comfort. I hear that a lot. Uh, I just want to be comfortable. I don't want any hassles. Hassle-free, pain-free, leisure, sports, pain-free security, a certainty. You get into OCD, the label OCD, there's a lust for certainty, a lust for safety, a lust for, I want to be certain I have no germs on my hands. I want to be certain uh, there's this lust for it, and they're sinning uh, by so preoccupied. Uh, and it's all, all these lusts, three things about them. All of these lusts, they're self-serving, they're self-deceiving, and they're self-destructive. So three things about these lusts. When you're, you're bowing down and worshiping these things, is they're self-serving, Self-deceiving and self-destructive. Respect is another one. We desire to be respected, but if you lust after it, it's idolatry. Lust for intimacy. Or fairness and justice or success. 
or independence. Some people lust after education. Some lust after marriage or after a certain parenting or family issue or tradition. Perfectionism. Perfectionism is not a virtue, unless you're God. Uh, Perfectionism is not a virtue. It's a vice. God hasn't called us to be perfect in everything. He's called us to be faithful in everything. And usually perfectionists are seeking some sort of attention and gratifying uh, lust of their own heart or control or appearance or love, peace. Anything and everything can be worshipped. I remember coming across uh, Dr. MacArthur's commentary on 1 Corinthians uh, in uh, chapter 10, verse 12, he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Verse 13, there's no temptation taken you, such as is common to man. And then verse 14, therefore, my beloved brethren, flee idolatry. And in that commentary, Dr. MacArthur writes, anything and everything can be worshipped. Anything and everything can become an object of worship. You know, God's gifts can be worshipped rather than the creator worshipping him. So it's just helpful to understand when you're asking questions, what are you wanting, what are you thinking? It often will reveal what that person wants so much that they could be sinning. They could be sinning in that area uh, and it becomes idolatrous. They want it so much they're going to sin to get it, sin if they don't get it. Now some helpful things that can uh, help recognize what these lusts are and I've said this numerous times already but uh, if you go down to some uh, number two there uh, I mean number five but letter B I'm usually willing to sin to get it to keep it, or if I don't get it. That's so helpful when you get angry. Or if you're anxious, just ask yourself, what am I wanting? I'm sinning in my anger. You go, well, my anger is righteous. I don't know about that. I think most of our anger is going to be sinful. But just ask yourself, what am I wanting so much that I'm sinning in my response because I'm not getting it. You think of road rage. What's a person wanting? No one else on the road. Uh, Why would anyone be on the road if I'm coming home? And why would anyone seek to pull in in front of me rather than wait behind me? Or they're on their cell phone and they're drifting over into my lane just think, though, why am I getting angry? What am I wanting? And if I'm sinning in my anger, then I'm wanting something way too much. And if it becomes habitual, a practice of wanting that so much and sinning, then it becomes idolatrous. That's often what's called idolatry of the heart. Uh, the unsaved... Uh, They live a life of idolatry. They're false worshipers. They're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Uh, But they are idolaters at heart. And the remedy is the gospel. So if I'm talking to anyone and they don't have faith in Christ, they don't have uh, 
a gospel testimony, then that you present Christ to them. That is the greatest need that they have. Now, if they are a believer, if they're a believer, they cannot be full-blown idolaters. A Christian cannot be a full-blown idolater. I would never call a Christian, you are an idolater. Are they committing idolatry if they're sinning in some area? Yes, but they're not a full-blown idolater. 1 Corinthians 6 says those who are idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So we, we dare not call a Christian an idolater. But they can practice some idolatry. King David, was he a murderer? No, he was not. Did he commit murder? Yes. Don't take a snapshot and and confuse it with the film strip. Was King David an adulterer? No. Did he commit adultery? Yes. You see the difference between a snapshot and the film strip. In Galatians 5, it says those who love and practice these things. It's a habitual, present participle. It's habitual activity of murdering, a habitual activity of idolatry, not from time to time they may be struggling with something. So I'm kind of looking for a film strip or the snapshot to help individuals here. But no Christian can be a full-blown idolater. But we can be, letter B, in compromising and syncretistic worship. We worship God and something else alongside of him from time to time. So again, the gospel uh, of Christ, who Christ is, his life, his death, his resurrection, has to affect us, carry out in us, and walk in a manner worthy of that. So constant appeals for us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. If you're in Christ, then walk in him. So grace is motivational. You have um, one book that I often will use in supplemental homework for someone that I'm working with and we're getting around a few sessions in, we went over the gospel and we went over the heart, worship of the heart, and now I want them to keep reading more about their heart worship. Uh, Brad Bigney's book is very helpful, got called Gospel Treason. And he unpacks some of the different things that Christians can get caught up in, common issues. But that's a helpful read alongside of uh, other scriptures that you're using. And for tools, uh, for homework, I have them. You have on page five. I will ask them to list on the left-hand column any issues in their life that they sin to get it or they sin if they don't get it. What are those common? Uh, it's not one, I, one thing that happened back five years ago. This is common. There's going to be some regular things going on here. 
And then to the right, I just want them to put an X uh, in that block. Is it rare that I sin to get this, or if I don't get it, is it occasional? Uh, it's pretty frequent. Uh, it's, it's all day. It's, it's most of the day, every day. It's all the time. I just want to see them rate themselves on uh, desires that have turned lustful. They're, they're sinning to get it. They're sinning if they don't. It's part. It's mixed worship now that's going on. If I were to turn the, the sheet that they fill out sideways, it would look like the uh, skyline of a city. Oh, there's a skyscraper. Uh, that's all the time. And then there's some other ones that are maybe mid-range, maybe smaller. That's going to be helpful as we start thinking through. If that's in the roots, then that would make sense why the fruit looks like it does, why your life is, is uh, looking the way it is. And then I tell them, now what I want you to do is to take all those issues that you listed, all those desires that have turned lustful, on the left-hand column there on page 5, transfer them over to page 6 on the left-hand column. And you can't put everything, they can't fill it all out in those little squares, but it gets them start starting to think, uh, what passages of Scripture speak to that desire of what I'm wanting? What was I wanting? What should I be wanting? Then into the thought area, what was I thinking? What are my thoughts about that desire if it carries itself out? And what should I be thinking? And what actions come off of that and what action should come off of that? Again, by the help of the Holy Spirit uh, for the glory of God. I'm trying to help them understand this is repentance uh, and faith. Uh, this is replacement you don't break habits as a christian you replace them habits of thinking habits of desire habits of choices it's all replaced through christ but god won't obey for us we've got to cooperate with the spirit here in that area now you have uh, and that's just a tool and we keep working with that. I work with that for a few weeks. I want them to really see what's going on at the root level and how it's come out into their fruit. And, and they're go uh, that's making sense now. I never understood that. And the heat was just God squeezing my heart and what's inside comes out. So kids don't make me angry. They just put the squeeze on my heart and what's inside comes out. Right? My spouse doesn't make me angry. No one makes you sin. But they can provoke you. They can put the squeeze on your heart like a sponge, and what's inside comes out. And so you can look like the most spiritual person until God brings in a heat or the squeeze. It may be job situation. It may be health situation. It may be a spouse, children, parents, and just squeezes, and then what's inside comes out and that's more you than what you thought you were like i thought i was fairly spiritual when i was single 
I was associate pastor, and I lived by myself. I was going to seminary, so I'd be in the classes, and you're just, you know, taking all this in, and then I would be uh, helping as an associate pastor, and then I'd go home. Everything was done my way. Uh, everything, I mean, everything I liked was there. I mean, I, that's, that's when, you, when you're single. So I thought I had all the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, I love myself, kind to myself, gentle with myself. <laughs> And then I, I got married. I'm going, oh, boy, I'm kind of feeling impatient. I'm, uh, I'm struggling with uh, uh, some, some anxiety. Uh, I'm discouraged. It, she's messing that up, and that's not the way I usually put where I put things. And, and I'm going, man, she's bringing me down spiritually. <laughs> no. No, she's not bringing me down spiritually. She's a gem. God just using the pressure of someone close to me to squeeze my own heart to let me see this is who I am. And then little sanctifying agents come around called children. <laughs> and more squeezes. And you go, oh, that's, now I think I'm a little more seeing who I am and I've got a long ways to go. Uh, in being a husband, being a father, and all the rest. It's, uh, if you, you're by yourself isolated, you can start thinking of yourself uh, in ways that just aren't true. right? It's, we grow in community, in the church community, in small groups. and um, So that, that, um, this is a tool to help people think what, do I tend to worship alongside of the Lord or above the Lord in my life that I'm sinning to get it, sin to keep it, sin if I don't get it? What is that? And then from my desire to my thoughts to my actions, I need to find out what it is and start repenting and replacing. So we would start with any uh, individual with the gospel, which is on the next page there, session three, presenting the gospel uh, in the counseling room. I won't, I'm not going to spend a lot of time. We're dealing with believers here, but I spend a whole session with people going through this uh, outline. I want to know where they're at. Uh, with God, man, sin, the Savior, what it means to repent and believe. So you can look that over at your own uh, leisure. But that... Um, just an outline that you're just, I'm just going to walk through. I'm going to talk through. I don't preach to them in the, uh, our meeting time. I walk through those outlines, some of the scriptures looking at um, if they're Christianized and they know a lot, sometimes they go, I don't have any questions with that. I don't have any questions with that. This, I do have a question. Then I slow down and try to help them. I just want to make sure we have a good foundation. Then on page six of that outline there, I want to see if they're imbalanced. If they're all in that top left-hand uh, column there with that cross tilted, I just want to know, are you all into Ephesians 4 through 6, but you don't read Ephesians 1 through 3 much? <laughs> you Just tell me what to do, but you're not thinking about Christ and positional statements and because I'm in him, I'm sealed in him, I'm adopted that motivates me to do what he's asked me to do. And you'll find Christians who 
pretty much live in either the first part of uh, some of these epistles or the last part of the epistle rather than the whole epistle, which is the bottom uh, left. Um, You don't want to get into um, almost pharisaicalism, maybe even legalism, and you don't want to go over into the other ditch where you're into license living and the hyper-grace movement. So you have to watch that. And you know, we all tilt. No one in here lives on that bottom left-hand figure there of a, a symbol of a cross. No one lives perfectly like that all day long. We, we, we can tilt where I'm not praying much. Oh, uh, well, I think it's my own effort that's going to do this. I'm, you know, I'm tilting over that or I'm thinking, yeah, I'm not going to bother with really doing what pleases the Lord and holy living there. I, I'm, I'm just going to dwell on grace and I'm, I'm sealed in the Lord. Ooh, uh, grace takes me towards holiness to be more like Christ. And you just, you tilt, you know, and when you're married, you can be tilted the opposite direction. And he's going, man, I'm just downloading sermon after sermon. Oh, this is so good. And she's going, get out here and help me in the kitchen. You know, in counseling, can you tell him what to do? And all he's going, I just want to think about gospel and grace, just gospel and grace. I'm just listening to six sermons today. What are you doing with the sermons? That's kind of dangerous to keep listening and not do anything. Theology is application. You've got to live what theology is. So you just have people listening, selective hearing when I'm counseling. People are listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just get to what I need to do. You no, you need this. You need that. It's living in light of the gospel of Christ. All right. So now let's go to the next set of notes. There, I appreciate James' help back there. He's orchestrating the the powerpoints. We're going to look at what true repentance is counterfeit and how to grow in our faith. So I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And when I'm talking to an individual and they're showing, I'm struggling with a particular sin. Now, not all counseling issues are sin. It might be a trial and they're suffering. I think we are all um, in agreement there. The Bible presents both those themes running through the scripture. There are sin issues, which is predominant in the Bible. And then there's suffering issues, trials. Job, uh, at the beginning of Job, he was in a trial. His friends were saying, you've sinned somehow. So we don't want to make everything a sin issue, but all sinners suffer and all sufferers sin. Job eventually was sinning at the end. But at the beginning it wasn't. It was just suffering. So we just want to find out what's going on in someone's life. But when someone's caught up in some sin, it, um, I, this, in my thinking as I've listened to people, it sounds like this when they tell me what's going on in their life. They go, well, um, it starts out with there's a lot of pressure in my life. 
I had someone just the other day tell me that. You know, I just see, when I think about when I sin, it's I'm under pressure and I get discouraged and I want comfort. Hmm. And he said, I think it's pretty uh, regular. Whenever I feel pressured, I want escape. I want to get out from the pressure and find comfort, and it leads me into choosing to sin in a particular area. And so they go, well, there's this desire that I have. I want to isolate myself. There's provision to carry out the sin. And then they go, and then, and, and then there's this, I'm not thinking about the Lord. I'm not thinking about other people. I'm just thinking about me. And then I struggle. You know, I, I'm struggling. And I, I like to follow up when people say that. Tell me about the struggle. Because I'm not hearing much of a fight. Just tell me about the struggle. <laughs> people say, I fell into sin. I think you jumped. <laughs> I, I don't, I'm not sure about the struggle. But it sounds good. And they have various rationalizations. One, one that this guy said, he said, you know, I, I, I fail in my mind, I might as well do it in my body. I already, I already failed in my struggle in my mind, I just soon then just sin in my body. They go, boy, that's not good thinking. Um, but that's lots of rationalizations. Then they say to themselves, you know, I, I can't win so I might as well just give in and please myself in some way, in some sinful way. And they, they make the decision to sin. And then there's immediate guilt. Guilt isn't a feeling. It's a fact. Uh, guilt is a fact. It's a, it's a fact. It's a, uh, uh, you're culpable. You broke a law, you're guilty. It doesn't matter if you feel it or not. And there's a solution for that. That's praise God for that. There's a solution for sin and guilt for a believer here. But they make a decision. And they're held responsible for that. And here, this is what kind of keeps them coming back. There's a pleasure, a momentary pleasure in sin. Even in Hebrews 11, you know, the passing pleasures of sin. There, there is pleasure in sin. It's a sugar-coated poison, but there's pleasure in it. And it keeps them coming back. And then there's this sorrow and shame. And they go, oh, I can't go to the Lord uh, and confess. This is like the millionth time I've done this. And, I'm just, and so they delay. Maybe they say they're sorry. If they've sinned against someone else, maybe I'm sorry. But there's no aggressive step to pursuing Jesus and provisions for lusts are not totally eliminated. There's this break in case of emergency handle with them around them. You've seen this on movies and shows or somewhere where someone goes, you know, like they gave up drinking. All of a sudden things get really tough in their life and behind the stove or somewhere they pull out a bottle. There was provision there in case of like I, they, uh, one guy uh, was pornography, and he said, I, I put the computer out in the living room. My wife has the, uh, the password for it, and so, yeah, I'm not looking at it. I said, well, you have a smartphone? He said, yeah. I think his tone was, yeah. 
Uh, do you look anything on that? Oh, yeah. Oh, so you're presenting, like, here I've got this all covered, but I still have access. That you'll find in this cycle, and it just keeps going and keeps going. Just why the Lord said, yeah, you've got radical of mortifying sin. You've got to pluck your eye out and don't tuck it in your pocket. Throw it far from you. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill it and its lust thereof. Getting radical. Usually I find people don't get radical. They're, they're oh, I don't need to really leave my job. I mean, the girl uh, I was involved with uh, uh, in immorality, she's in a cubicle next to me. I don't really need to leave my job. You, go, you need to get radical here. This is the temptations. Uh, you try to remove provision for all possible for the flesh. Then they keep to themselves no real effort on their, uh, on their heart change done or outside help is sought. So they don't, no real effort on heart change is done. They don't really tell anyone else. They don't seek help. And the time pressure builds and they just continue on. That just sounds so familiar with people who are in habitual sin, whether it's overeating um, or eating and getting rid of it quickly or a sexual sin, it'll be something similar to that. It just seems like it's like a cycle, continues on. So let's think through the whole issue of repentance and faith. So I'm going to go through this um, very quickly, but you have the notes. But I'll just try to fill in the, the blanks that you have. But I want you to look at 2 Corinthians 7. There was a time when I kind of wished I had a repentance detector on the, on the threshold of my office door. Just like at the airports, if I have anything metal, it goes off. And I, well, I'd sure like to know if they walked in the office door, if, if some meter would go off and say, oh, they are repentant or they're not repentant. Well, this section of scripture here pretty much is a repentance detector. Uh, Paul is saying here, he wrote a letter. We don't believe it's the uh, first Corinthians, another letter. It wasn't inspired or we would have had it. But he calls it the sorrowful letter. In verse 8, he said, If I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Now comes the repentance detector. You want to know what true repentance looks like? For a godly grief or sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So there are at least six uh, different elements there of true repentance. Uh, Thomas Watson, 
in his book on repentance, points these six out. Uh, They're right there in 2 Corinthians 7. I read them. But you have earnestness. There is a sincerity and seriousness about the condition of your soul. Uh, There's an eagerness to act on what's been heard and be cleared against any sin against God. There's an indignation, a hatred of sin. There's a fear or a, a reverence of God. There is a longing for peace and reconciliation with God and others. And there is a zeal for the works of God. And so those six items there are very uh, helpful. So let's go through um, the word sorrow or grief. It's the same word used for godly uh, sorrow. So you have worldly sorrow and godly sorrow, which tells me everybody's sorry. If they've done anything wrong, everyone's sorry. I just need to know, is it a worldly sorrow or a godly sorrow? Uh, It's demonstrated in several people. These are just a sample list there. Esau was sorrowful and wept. Uh, He he sought repentance with tears and didn't find it. But it wasn't repentance from God. It was he wanted his dad to change and didn't in Hebrews 12. Pharaoh was sorrowful. He even said, I've sinned. Pharaoh. King Saul said the same thing. I've sinned against God. So sometimes sorrow, saying words, the right words may not be that they are repentant. The nation of Israel tore their garments, but not their hearts. Judas was sorrowful. He even returned the money. And even said, I have betrayed innocent blood. But he was not repentant. He went out and hung himself. We see it described um, in three different ways here. The person who waters down their problem is typically not repentant. Like, what's the big deal? I remember a guy that was unfaithful to his wife for 12 years. And in counseling, they weren't separated at the time. In counseling, he's sitting in front of me and he goes, what's the big deal? 12 years of being unfaithful. What's the big deal? So I told him a couple thousand years ago, I'd be doing your funeral today. Uh, You'd be dead as an adulterer. But he said he was broken, he's repentant, but he wasn't. And it was just a matter of time until he was back again and, and more immorality. But people who water down the issue, uh, it's no big deal. They'll say, uh, just a small sin. I think I put there, didn't I? Um, Maybe I didn't. It's a... No, I didn't. Uh, I'll try to remember. Uh, It's Sinclair Ferguson. And he writes, um, there's no small sin 
with God. It may be a small act, but it's a great sin. There's no such thing as a small sin before God. Eating fruit. Is that a small act? Yeah. Adam and Eve just ate some fruit. Great sin. Hitting a rock rather than speaking to it. A small act. Great sin. No small sins with God. They may be a small act, but they are all great sins. And there's a great remedy for that in the the, uh, grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus. So just don't... People who start downplaying the sin is not a good sign of a godly sorrow. Uh, I put there, those people who wallow around in it, they don't leave the sin. They keep, just can't believe I did that. Oh, poor me. They get into self-pity. Almost like they're wanting you to uh, say it's okay, you're okay, rather than, no, you need to leave that sin. You don't, you don't wallow around in it, and poor me. Someone who says, I can't believe I did that, doesn't understand depravity. And thirdly, the person who works to get rid of it. I broke it, I'll fix it. That's a, the Roman Catholics call it penance, but it, penance has been around for a long time before then. In the Old Testament, lots of people trying to work uh, do works to get rid of sin rather than find Christ sufficient for their sin. And you have the definition there of penance in your notes. So I put various elements there uh, accompany worldly sorrow, and you go, I don't see those in the passage. They're just the opposite. I just took the opposite of the elements for true repentance. I go, "What what would counterfeit look like? I regret having to give up the sin. Ugh, I hate I had to give up the sin. That, that would be worldly sorrow, not repentance. Regret giving the sin up, laziness rather than zeal, making excuses. They're angry at the mess, but they're not angry at the sin or that they committed the sin. They fear consequences rather than reverencing and fearing God. There's no longing for true restoration. No real effort to uh, correct the problem, and they often find false refuges. That's just worldly sorrow. The sure results uh, is death. You see that there uh, in 2 Corinthians. uh, It results in death. The doctrine of godly sorrow, you see it defined demonstrated David King David is the best if you want someone to read someone repentant Psalm 51 Martin Lloyd Jones also has a book on out of the depth uh, talking about uh, David's confession in Psalm 51 it's the best testimony of repentance second Corinthians defines true repentance Psalm 51, a display of it. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. Broken, contrite before God. And you have other examples, too, of 
of repentance is described there in the passage of self-examination. One's focus is not on self, but on God. If I don't hear God in their confession, I'm wondering if they're repentant. You know, well, I'm sorry, uh, apologize. Well, what'd you do? And then they get defensive? That's not a good sign. They say, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. This is sounding more and more like worldly sorrow to repentance. Prodigal son did that. I've sinned against heaven and against you to his father. But God should be in their, their thinking. Full admittance to sin. They're not saying but or because. And then the realization and acceptance of forgiveness and grace of God. They're not trying to work off of their sin. They accept God's forgiveness as they seek to change. Then you have various elements, and I won't go through all of that. That's, there's nothing there to fill in. It's just showing you the different words for repentance, and it's a full heart change that leads to an outward change. It's an it's a inward change that leads to an outward change. So you'll see it, hear it. Um, as well, from their heart out into their life. And it's all of grace. Let me just get there. I'm trying to watch the time here. I'm going to go through all the different words. Um, It's all of grace. If it's of God, it's going to be of grace. God will enable a person to turn and to embrace Christ with truth. So again, we understand uh, it is a heart change. So I'm just moving here to making sure that we must remember. That's where we're at. We're on page. I'm on page seven. I just want to finish up and then have a break. The goal is to help in restoring a believer. Right, we want to help restore them. Any any believer caught in a sin, Galatians six one, help restore them. We're not trying to get rid of them. We're trying to help restore them, calling them to true repentance, true godly sorrow and repentance. Watch at the same time. Watch our own heart, as the Spirit tells us. There, the means of correction takes place uh, in our lives by us really working with the Spirit. So the person is working dependently upon the Holy Spirit by the means of the Scriptures within the context of the body of believers. Now, we need to understand sin both generally and specifically And so I listed several bullet points. I'll just encourage you to ponder those, think those through. They're just things to be looking out for when you're ministering to someone who's, um, it's been a sin issue in their life. Uh, Things that will help you 
probe a little bit, check this out kind of thing. And we want to be sure to make this matter a constant prayer request. A constant prayer request. Praying. It's a spiritual battle that they're in. So that's at the bottom of page 7. And then at the top of page 8, we want to encourage them wherever they're doing right. When someone's overtaken by sin, just the other day I was watching one of our students counsel another student. And the student was trying to start a new habit, a a right God-honoring habit. And so the the student counselor said, uh, so tell me how last week went. And um, the other student said, well, uh, it's okay. It didn't go all that great. I missed several days and trying to do this thing. And I just looked over at the other the student counselor, and he just went, okay, all right. Uh, let me ask the next homework assignment. So when I'm doing a, at the end, a review, I said, now, let's go back there to that uh, new habit he's trying to start. How many days in a week was he doing it before you all started meeting? Well, none. He, he was not practicing this righteous habit at all. Okay. So how many days did he practice it last week when you assigned it and he, he's wanting to please God? Uh, why don't you ask him? You know, how, many, how many days did you? He said four. Okay, that's four days, then nothing. Before that, nothing. Then four days. What do you think? Well, that's pretty good. Yeah, he didn't think so because he wanted seven out of seven. Habits don't work that way. It's growing in a habit. You can encourage him. Let him see it was nothing before. You got four. I mean, praise God. I mean, it was a good habit. It was a good discipline that he was doing. That's the kind of thing. Encourage people. Uh, They see their failures. And sometimes it's a very high standard where they need to get to. It's just any step by the Spirit of God's help towards Christ-likeness, encourage them. Now, I have um, a quick thing just to think through a case. I just wanted to show you someone caught up in a sin, and I'm not going to do all kinds of teaching on it. I just want you to see it, but I kind of have to step over here to... To read, I can't read it back there. <clears throat> He's a single man in his early 30s. Comes for counseling, informs you that he has a major financial problem. That was his presenting issue. I'm having trouble with my, my finances. I ask more questions. Find out uh, it's, that's not the only issue. Uh, it's not that he can't pay his bills. And he's constantly asking for extensions. Uh, he had his car repossessed. But you gather more information and find out that he has a pornography problem for over 10 years. When he gets paid every two weeks, he goes away once a month for the weekend, a whole weekend, and binges, absolute binges on food, a pornography, masturbation. And then you ask about his relationship with the Lord Jesus. He says he trusted in Christ in his teen years. He says he hasn't grown that much. He doesn't feel much like reading the Bible or praying except that the Lord would 
take away his sexual struggle and, find, and work out his finances. But he knows that God sees his heart, knows that what he wants to do uh, is what's right. So it's a real struggle that he's, he's internally. When you ask him what he's done about the problem, he says, I pray every day, several times a day, that God will take my addiction away. I've made numerous commitments to Christ and do not uh, to do it uh, to not do it anymore. And then he says, "But you know, I'm only human, and no one's perfect." Well, there's rationalizations right there. No one's perfect. I'm only human. You hear his hopelessness and see his state of despair. So, how do we help Kurt? Well, three key points. Just giving him information isn't going to lead to transformation. Uh, I can give him all the data. Uh, That's not going to lead to transformation. If he doesn't become a doer of the word, he's not going to change. If he's a believer, I mean, he gave me an orthodox testimony. So don't just think more data, even more Bible, without the practice of it will lead to transformation. It leads to arrogance. It leads to puffing up. So hearing has to go to doing. We must intentionally meditate on specific application to our own lives. And God will not believe for you, nor will he obey for you. So he's asking God to take away his addiction rather than him following the biblical protocol. So I looked at that passage earlier. This is a a doctrine of mortifying sin in the Bible. Uh, Romans 8 uh, talks about put to death the deeds of the flesh. It's a discipline of grace whereby a Christian pursuing purity and holiness, resting on Christ's finished work on the cross, aggressively strives against sin in his life and thus weakens it so that its power and predominance is subdued and practically destroyed, while at the same time, aggressively strives towards a growing faith in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I try to emphasize those two words. You don't coast away from sin, and you don't coast towards Christ-likeness. This is aggressive. The Puritans called it holy sweat. Uh, This is exercise yourself unto godliness by the help of the Spirit of God motivated by the gospel. So helping Kurt, and I'm going to walk through the whole process here in the next session, but I just wanted you to see, these are some things that had to really help Kurt with. Um, Here's the situation. It gets to be Friday. He's getting paid today. Think about his past habits. And I'm so under pressure at work and with my bills. There's the pressure building up. You can start seeing uh, he's going to go into a default ravine here of habitual uh, sin activity. What is he wanting? He doesn't want the pressure. Wants escape, wants pleasure, wants comfort. Heart issues. So his his awareness of God, he hasn't been thinking about God or others that much, just himself. So he really needs to start recognizing his allegiance to Christ. He says he's in Christ and that he's dead to sin, alive unto Christ. I mean, Romans 6 is huge here. And now because of the resurrection, he can actually walk in newness of life. 
If he's a prisoner entangled in sin, he's a voluntary prisoner. There's no locks on the door. If you're in Christ, you've been set free. But we can choose to still get entangled in sin. But you don't have to. That, that's power of uh, the gospel of Christ. His, uh, his spirit, the Holy Spirit, indwells me, gives me the power to not have to give in to sin. And the Lord is always near me, and his Holy Spirit indwells me. And that's focused on like a doxology. Start thinking biblically. And I'll tell you some things that will be to help on that in the next session. So he can pray this in Philippians 4, getting concerned, anxious, worrying. I praise you, God, that who you are, you are always faithful. I thank you that you are slow to anger, full of mercy and grace, will forgive me if I confess and repent. You are also holy, and you command me to be holy as you are holy. You are in me both to will and to do your good pleasure. He's not on his own. Philippians 2.13, God's in him both to will and to do his good pleasure. Now, what scriptures are going to help uh, Kurt here with uh, the temptation, his battle with sin, Matthew 5, uh, Matthew 22 about loving God, loving your neighbor, Romans 5 through 8, that whole section of positional statements, now live it out in chapter 8, chapter 13, 14 about putting on the Lord Jesus, uh, 1 Corinthians 6 about uh, in sexual immorality, you bought with a price, glorify God in your body. Uh, 10.13, about no temptation has taken you. Uh, you don't have to give in. 1 Thessalonians 4, about holiness and purity. 1 Peter 1, about be holy, for God is holy. And there are other passages as well. Just what scriptures? I need to dwell on things that are true, honest, right, pure, lovely, good report, virtuous, praiseworthy. Here's what he needs to be saying to himself quickly. So I even have him write it on a flashcard. And when that temptation Friday comes around, you need to review these. Review them in the morning. Review them in the, at lunchtime. You get paid. You need to review this. This is, this is truth out of God's word, uh, the scriptures. But this is his new thinking. Lord Jesus, because you are both loving and holy, and you saved me in the spirit and dwells me, I am to walk as a child of yours in truth and light. Thank you that you promised to forgive me as I confess and repent with the help of your Holy Spirit. I have removed all provision for my sinful lust and am intentionally and aggressively pursuing holiness in my life by reading your word, prayerfully meditating on it, both deliberately and occasionally, with specific and concrete application for my daily life. I'm on the hunt for ways to love others and not use them for my own sinful and selfish pleasure. You have graced me with a job to work hard for your glory and to give to those in need. That's why we work, not just for ourselves, but to give. I have shared this struggle with a few other Christian brothers in my small group at church. Now, here's some things he can even do, which is practicing. I've shared this with a few other godly men. I've put filters on all my electronic devices. I've held myself accountable to a godly man who helps me with my finances. So he gets that check. Now he has accountability with that check, what to do with it. Start paying off bills and putting it in um, 
and I, I usually will have people help assist in my counseling, is where you bring in some of the others in the body of Christ uh, to help him with his finances. He had all kinds of different issues, and I wanted someone else to help him with his finances. I'm going to help him with uh, just his struggle with lust. So you can bring in some others. It says, y'all, you plural, help someone who's in, uh, entangled with sin, Galatians 6. It's you plural. So I try to get some team counseling, if at all possible. Uh, I've committed to read, memorize, and meditate on God's word and prayer, especially on those passages that I mentioned. I've sought specific ways to love and serve others. Others, not myself. And I've moved in with a few other godly men. So he's not on his own, going doing whatever he wants with no accountability. He's taken specific steps, but it's from the heart out. It's not just behavior modification. This is heart change by the power of the Spirit of God for his glory. So we're going to have a break. If you come back um, at 25 after, it's about a 12, 13-minute break. And then I'll do the last session, which is some of the key elements of change, uh, as well as how do I renew my mind. Um, So that'll be up next. So you have a break.